0: Good evening, I'm Amna Nawaz.
1: And I'm Jeff Bennett on the News Hour tonight. The U.S. Supreme Court sounds skeptical as it hears arguments about whether Colorado can bar former President Donald Trump from the state's primary ballot.
0: The Justice Department says President Biden willfully withheld classified documents, but will not seek charges.
1: And a new report details the destruction of the Ukrainian city of Mariupol and accuses Russian forces of war crimes.
2: This operation really stands out as one of the worst chapters of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine so far.
0: Welcome to the News NewsHour. The Justice Department has declined to prosecute President Joe Biden for his handling of classified Obama-era documents, which were found in his former office in Washington, D.C. and at his home in Delaware.
1: In a 345-page report, special counsel Robert Hur wrote, quote, we conclude that no criminal charges are warranted in this matter. President Biden offered his first public comments about the report earlier this evening.
3: Special counsel acknowledged I cooperated completely. I did not throw up any roadblocks. I sought no delays. In fact, I was so determined to give a special counsel what they needed. I went forward with a five-hour in-person interview over the two days of October the 9th, 8th and 9th last year, even though Israel had just been attacked by Hamas on the 7th. I was especially pleased to see the special counsel make clear the stark differences between this case and Donald Trump. Bottom line is the special counsel, in my case, decided against moving forward with any charges. This matter is now closed.
1: Let's bring in Ona Hathaway, a professor at Yale Law School and a former special counsel at the Pentagon. Thank you for being with us. So this investigation found that President Biden had willfully retained classified material after finishing his term as vice president and that he had shared sensitive information with a ghostwriter who helped him with his 2017 memoir the president isn't facing charges in what would typically be considered a felony. Does this outcome comport with the facts and evidence in the case?
4: I think it does. I mean, I think that this this report is sort of balancing on a very thin line. Um, It concludes, as you say, that in the opinion of the investigators that he did act willfully. But um, it determines that they don't believe that they would be able to persuade a jury of that. And there are a number of reasons they don't think a jury would be uh, inclined to believe that, in fact, he behaved willfully. And that's a heightened intent standard that's necessary to prove a violation um, of the provisions of law that are at issue here. And so that's why they declined to prosecute. Um, But it's why the report sort of reads sometimes like, on the one hand, it's saying that he, in fact, acted in contravention of law, but on the other hand, they're declining to prosecute. And that's, that's the distinction here.
1: And the separate investigation into Donald Trump's mishandling of classified documents that resulted in 40 criminal counts against him remind us of the significant differences here, why Donald Trump is being prosecuted and President Biden isn't.
4: Well, the main difference here is that um, when uh, when former President Trump was asked to return these documents by the National Archives several times, um, he declined. Um, it was demanded. Um, he again declined. Um, he was told that he was unlawfully uh, retaining classified information and documents. He again declined. Um, and it took a raid of Mar-a-Lago to Uh, to excavate those documents and bring them back into government custody. By contrast, when uh, President Biden was notified that he may have uh, retained classified documents, and, in fact, it was his own staff that discovered the possibility that there may have been retained documents initially at his office at the University of Pennsylvania, they disclosed to the government directly And then he fully cooperated. So he, as he said in that clip that you uh, read, uh, that you played, um, he sat for a five-hour interview. Uh, He opened up his homes for searches. He turned everything over that he had. So that was a very different response, and it and it suggests that he didn't mean to be intending to to be holding this classified information. Um, And I think the government really took that into account in determining whether they thought that they could persuade a jury that he meant to be unlawfully uh, retaining classified information.
1: And on that point, Ona, the special counsel, uh, Robert Herr, in this case, said that he chose not to bring charges in part because, this is from his report, Mr. Biden would likely present himself to a jury, as he did during our interview with with him, as a sympathetic, well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory. Now. In response to this, the White House counsel and the president's personal attorney, Bob Bauer, wrote a letter where they took issue with that. And they said that the report uses highly prejudicial language to describe a commonplace occurrence among witnesses, which is a lack of recall after, you know, of years old events. This report reads like more than a recitation of facts. Does it cross the line into excess?
4: Well, it's interesting. I mean, the report, when you read it, it's clearly written for a public audience. Um, it's not written like a normal legal document. It's not written in legalese, really. Um, and certainly the beginning summary is written with a kind of audience in mind. It's written with the public audience in mind and certainly with reporters in mind. Um, and it does characterize some of these events in ways that are that are kind of striking. That was one of the lines in particular um, that this sort of jumps out. Um, I mean, one way to read that and one way to say that differently would be to say, look, this is you know, many years later. He doesn't remember the exact contents of the documents. And they go on later to explain that one of the reasons for that may be that, in fact, he may not even have known what documents exactly were removed uh, from his office, because he didn't actually pack many of these boxes himself. In fact, very, he didn't really pack any of these boxes himself. And he didn't direct that many of these documents be removed. And so the extent to which he actually knew some of these classified documents were in his office is is hard to determine. And so when they were asking him some of these questions, you know, he wasn't recalling all the details and and that makes it hard to prove. I mean, because you have to show that there was intent—that he knew he had classified documents, that he had removed them, he intentionally retained them, um, and he knew that in doing so that he was acting unlawfully—and um, that's what you have to prove to convince a jury to convict. And I think, rightfully, the the um, special uh, prosecutor here decided that they just didn't have the information that they would need to be able to convince a jury of that.
1: Yale Law School professor Ona Hathaway, thanks so much for your insights. We appreciate it.
4: Thanks for having me.
0: The U.S. Supreme Court today heard arguments in a landmark election case looking at whether former President Donald Trump's actions on January 6th should disqualify him from appearing on the Republican primary ballot in Colorado. For over two hours, the justices scrutinized an obscure provision in the 14th Amendment at the center of this case. That provision says that former elected officials should be barred from holding office. If guilty of insurrection, former President Trump weighed in after the arguments concluded.
5: You're leading in the country by a lot. And can you take the person that's leading everywhere and say, hey, we're not going to let you run? You know, I think that's pretty tough to do, but uh, I'm leaving it up to the Supreme Court.
0: Our own William Brangham and Supreme Court analyst Marsha Coyle were both at the court today and join me here now. It's great to see you both. Hi. Good to see you. So, William, you reported on this last night, but just remind us what is the main argument in Colorado's case here?
3: A group of Republican voters in Colorado watched January sixth happen, and they said. That was an insurrection, and Donald Trump was responsible for it. And so they petitioned their state to say that, under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which is this so-called insurrection clause, that he should be disqualified from running and from becoming president again. Section 3, if you remember, basically says that, if you're elected to office and you swear an oath to the Constitution, but then you commit an insurrection. You're ineligible to be in office again unless two-thirds of the Congress wipes that stain away from you. And so they argued this to their... went all the way up to the Colorado State Supreme Court, a split decision, sided with them. That was the case that was being argued today.
0: And Marcia, in listening to this, which I have to say is so cool to be able to do, <laughs> but it didn't sound like it broke along partisan lines, right? Justices on both sides had questions and issues. One major question was about the power of states in enforcing that insurrection clause, Section Three. Chief Justice John Roberts actually said this:
3: "In very
5: quick order, I would expect, um, although my predictions have never been correct, uh, I would expect that." Uh, you know, A goodly number of states will say, uh, whoever the Democratic candidate is, you're off the ballot, and others, uh, the, for the Republican candidate, you're off the ballot, and it'll come down to just a handful of states that are going to decide the presidential election. That's a pretty daunting consequence.
6: Marshall, what exactly are his concerns here? Well, I think, uh, as you mentioned, the, the key issue that the justices did appear to be most interested in, and that's across the, the bench, uh, was the, the whether the states have a role to enforce Section 3 against non-state candidates like a president. And Mr. Trump's uh, attorney argues that they have no role at all, absent congressional legislation, giving them authorization. The Colorado lawyer argued that... The states have broad power under Article II, the Elector's Clause, in order to run elections, and that includes enforcing qualifications for the ballot. So the chief justice took it a step further. He asked the hypothetical, assuming states do have the power to do this, is this what's going to start happening? You're going to have different states with different standards, different definitions of, for example, insurrection. Uh, and uh, different uh, rules for uh, holding a trial on that, and it's just going to be uh, become very political. There's going to be retaliation if they throw a Republican off the ballot. A state that uh, is upset about that might throw a Democrat off the ballot. And that's when I felt the arguments also started to turn quite a bit against Colorado Hmm. and in favor of Mr. Trump's uh, arguments. Uh, So that's what the Chief Justice was basically saying, and it was picked up by other justices voicing
3: similar concerns. I mean, to that point, it is what you were saying, Amna, about how this really did split along, not split along ideological lines. Another issue that did come up was this question of whether Section Three actually applies to the presidency, because in the clause, in the the section itself, it lists all the different offices that could be disqualified if you commit an insurrection. President is not mentioned in that list. Everyone sort of assumed they meant it, but Ketanji Brown Jackson pricked that up today. Uh, let's listen to what she had to say about that.
7: But then why didn't they put the word president in the very enumerated list? in Section 3. The thing that really is troubling to me is, I totally understand your argument, but they were listing people that were barred, and President is not there. This came
1: up in the debates in Congress over Section 3, where uh, Reverdy Johnson said, why haven't you included President and Vice President in the language? And Senator Morrill responds, we
7: have. Look at the language, any office under the United States. Yes, but doesn't that at least suggest ambiguity. And this sort of ties into Justice Kavanaugh's point. In other words, we had a a person right there at the time saying what I'm saying. The the language here doesn't seem to include president. Why is that? And so if there's ambiguity, why would we construe it to, as Justice Kavanaugh pointed out, uh, against democracy?
0: It's fascinating how much of this goes around, just the language at play here. But, William, did they ever address that central point you, mas- you mentioned there, that January 6th was an insurrection, that President Trump was responsible in some way for it?
3: Yeah, you would think that that would have been a central line of questioning, but it really wasn't today. I mean, the point about was this an insurrection or not, or even Donald Trump's role on January 6th, barely came up. The lawyer from Colorado, Jason Murray, kept trying to insert that into his answers. But the justices, again, they get to choose what parts of these laws they need and rulings they want to talk about. This is not they're not relitigating the entire case. But it was surprising how little that came up. Marcia and I both felt that way. I do want to play this one bit where Justice Kavanaugh was questioning Jason Murray, the lawyer representing Colorado, about this, where he was arguing to the point that Marcia was making that if you allow Colorado to basically dictate who sits on the presidential ballot, that that in and of itself is anti democratic. Listen to this exchange. In trying to figure out what Section 3 means and to the extent it's elusive language or vague language. What about the idea that um, we should think about democracy, think about the right of the people to elect uh, candidates of their choice, uh, of letting the people decide? Because your position has the effect of disenfranchising uh, voters to a significant degree.
1: This case illustrates the danger of refusing to apply Section 3 as written Because the reason we're here is that President Trump tried to disenfranchise 80 million Americans who voted against him, and the Constitution doesn't require that he be given another chance.
3: So that's about as close as they got to putting this case before the justices about whether January 6th was an insurrection.
0: Marcia, meanwhile, this is all playing out as the public watches it, right? There were calls, we should mention, for Justice Thomas to recuse himself because of his wife's involvement in January 6. He did not. There's been scrutiny of the credibility of the court. And now they have an enormous decision before them about whether or not a former president should be on a primary ballot. When are they going to make this decision? (laughs) And also, they have to figure out whether or not to
6: take up the case uh, regarding former president's immunity case as well. Yeah. In fact, uh, well, as as far as the case today that was argued, I expect that they may move fairly quickly. I mean, they move quickly to schedule a briefing and arguments in this case. Uh, I think they're very aware that there are uh, primary uh, election deadlines approaching, ballot questions. uh, And uh, the question of uh, President, uh, former President Trump's immunity is something he has to actually take the next step, since he lost in the lower court, no immunity. Mm -hmm. He's got to appeal to the Supreme Court by Monday uh, in order to stop uh, the lower court's ruling from moving forward to the trial judge and the trial actually taking place. So we'll see more of that. And I think the court is very aware of all of this, as well as uh, how it's viewed as an institution and what its ruling can be. In a lot of ways, the case today is a lose-lose. You know, whoever wins uh, or whoever loses, there's going to be criticism of the court uh, and probably political criticism. So uh, it's tough, but that's what they get paid to do.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Marsha Coyle, William Brangham, thank you so much.
6: Thank you. Thank you.
0: In the day's other headlines, Israel stepped up airstrikes on Rafah along Gaza's border with Egypt, a city packed with refugees. Hospital officials reported at least 13 people were killed as the assault on Hamas moved south. Survivors denounced the attacks that left their homes in ruins. And the White House warned against an all-out Israeli drive into Rafah.
8: Any major military operation in Rafah at this time, under these circumstances, with more than a million, probably more like a million and a half Palestinians who are seeking refuge and have been seeking refuge in Rafah, without due consideration for their safety, uh, would be a disaster. And we would not support it.
0: In central Gaza, heavy fighting continued in Khan Yunus. A senior Israeli military official said Hamas forces there are largely destroyed, but senior leaders might have escaped through tunnels. In the meantime, Secretary of State Antony Blinken is heading home from Israel. He failed to make much headway toward a ceasefire, but said there's still room for negotiations. Iraq is warning that U.S. strikes on Iranian-backed militias will fuel demands for the U.S. coalition to leave the country. An attack on Wednesday killed the leader of one militia group that the U.S. blamed for targeting American troops. The White House said today that discussions with Baghdad are going forward. Ukraine's president Volodymyr Zelensky announced a major military shakeup today facing a stalemate in the war with Russia. He removed his top general Valery Zaluzhny, saying the time for such renewal is now. The country's ground forces commander, Alexander Syrsky, was promoted to take over as army chief. In Pakistan, they're counting votes tonight, in parliamentary elections marred by surging violence. On Wednesday, 30 people died in twin bombings, and 12 more were killed today. Voters faced long lines and a shutdown of mobile phone services to head off disruptions. Some said they want to see an end to deep divisions.
1: Now, we should hope for the best. We have to decide on matters ourselves through elections. God willing, Pakistan's future is bright if the decisions are made according to the opinion and aspirations of the people.
0: The ousted former Prime Minister, Imran Khan, was banned from running. He's now serving prison terms for corruption and other charges. The Prime Minister of Haiti, Ariel Henry, appealed for calm today after three days of violent protests and demands that he resign. Fiery demonstrations have erupted across the country this week. Gang violence, poverty and a refusal to hold general elections spurred the protests. Back in this country, the FCC has ordered an immediate end to using voices generated by artificial intelligence in automated phone calls. Today's unanimous ruling cited fears that the technology can misinform voters. Robocalls circulated in New Hampshire ahead of last month's primary, with audio impersonations of President Biden. Military teams work today to recover the remains of five U.S. Marines killed when their helicopter crashed in Southern California. The Super Stallion helicopter went down Tuesday night during a record-breaking storm in the mountains just east of San Diego. Officials said cold, snowy conditions have slowed the operation. On Capitol Hill today, senators pressed pharmaceutical companies to explain why drugs cost so much more in the US than other countries. CEOs of Johnson & Johnson, Merck, and Bristol-Myers Squibb appeared at a hearing to defend their pricing. Committee chair Bernie Sanders cited the Merck cancer drug Keytruda and said it costs 4 times more in the US than in Japan.
9: Will you commit to lowering the price of Keytruda in the United States to the price of Japan?
5: Well, Senator, I I think, um, first, I acknowledge the prices in the United States are higher uh, than they are in many of the countries, you said, and and not for all drugs, but for many drugs. And that's the reality we face. But I think it's also important to point out that you get access in the United States faster and more than anywhere in the world.
0: The drug company executives blamed middlemen, among other factors, for driving up prices to consumers and on wall street stocks edged a little higher the dow jones industrial average gained 49 points to close at 38726 the nasdaq rose 37 points and the s&p 500 added about 3 points still to come on the news hour millions of americans face a cost of living crisis as spiking rental prices make housing unaffordable st paul minnesota makes history as the first major american city to an elect an all female city council And a social media creator matches images of sporting highlights with classic works of art.
9: This is the PBS NewsHour from WETA Studios in Washington and in the West from the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism at Arizona
10: State University.
1: After days of stops and starts, the U.S. Senate today moved toward giving Ukraine, Israel, and other allies billions in aid. It's a major step, though far from the final one. And it's all unfolding as Ukraine is running out of supplies and time to fend off Russia's advances. Here to break it all down are Lisa Desjardins, Laura Baron lopez and Nick Schifrin with the welcome to all three of you. Lisa, where do things stand on the Hill right now?
11: All right. So, to remind people, where we had the situation was that Senate Republicans and House Republicans had demanded and pushed for this border security and also national security foreign aid bill together. Then they decided they were going to block that, Senate Republicans. So Democrats said, OK, we'll take out the border portion, which you say you can't agree to. Then Senate Republicans spent a day blocking also the bill with that portion stripped out, as they said they wanted. Now, this morning, Senate Republicans in a private meeting couldn't figure out what they wanted to do. At lunchtime, a group of 17 Senate Republicans broke with the rest of their party, led by Mitch McConnell, and they voted to advance that national security bill over the key Senate hurdle, 67 votes in the end for getting over this obstacle. Let's look at what is in that bill that is now moving in the Senate. It is a $95 billion bill total prominently $60 billion in aid to Ukraine. That's the highest dollar figure, $14 billion for Israel, $9 billion for humanitarian aid for several places, including Gaza. It also does include fentanyl sanctions and penalties for some foreign powers and entities. Um, But what is important here is that this is now a bill that has the votes to make it through the Senate. We don't know when it will, because, of course, the Senate takes its time. Mm -hmm. But sometime in the next few days, by early next week, it looks like this bill will clear the Senate.
1: So, sufficient votes in the Senate, but what happens in the House? Is House Speaker Mike Johnson amenable to any of this?
11: That's an incredibly huge question. We don't know. Um, I have been told by Senator Rick Scott and others that Johnson has told them he would like this bill separated out into different pieces. His office says, no, that's not exactly where they are. This will be a test for Mike Johnson. And in fact, if he brings this bill up in a bipartisan form. It could re- risk his speakership because we know the hard right has a problem with bipartisan bills. So there will be a test for him coming soon. And Laura, remind us how we got here.
12: Well, uh, when we go back all the way to the fall, Jeff, essentially, President Biden introduced this national security package with the border security in it because Republicans asked for that. Then Republicans wanted more. They wanted real sub- substantive changes to immigration policy and asylum policy. And the White House came to the negotiating ta- table, albeit Some Democrats think they came a little bit too late uh, in December. And they conceded a lot, more than they uh, any prior administration, Democratic administration has before. Typically, Democrats ask for a pathway to citizenship uh, for DREAMers in exchange for giving Republicans more on border security. This one didn't have that. Then Donald Trump entered the chat, the yeah. former president. And he tweeted, in, uh, well, Truth Socialed on January 17th, that he didn't think there should be a border deal unless Republicans could get everything. And then again just this week, uh, in addition to repeating over and over that this bill was a gift to Democrats and a death wish for the Republican Party, I spoke to Senator Chris Coons of Delaware uh, today, a close Biden ally, who said that he was talking to a lot of GOP Senators in recent days who said that they were getting phone calls from Donald Trump saying that why are you doing why are you trying to help Joe Biden I need this issue to get elected Senator James Lankford also repeated this essentially saying that he was intimidated by a conservative commentator saying that uh, if Lankford supported and moved this bill forward that that he would be destroyed.
1: So how is President Biden then responding to the demise of this border deal? and uh, more Ukraine funding, which is a key priority of his.
12: So, the White House is using those facts in the timeline I just laid out uh, to essentially cudgel the GOP and say that they are choosing the former president over Border Patrol. They're also citing that the Border Patrol Labor Union has endorsed endorsed uh, the, the border deal that they struck with Republicans. Senator Chris Coons also told me that he thinks that Biden should go down, that the president should go down to the border, have the bill in hand, wave it around and say that he was willing to sign it and other Democrats have said that they think that the president should really strike that contrast making clear that uh, he was willing to buck some progressives in his own party to to get this bill over the finish line and sign it but as for Ukraine Jeff um, National Security Council spokesperson John Kirby said that the president is not giving up on trying to get some GOP support for this
8: the president believes that support for Ukraine is critical particularly right now Uh, as Russia continues to try to uh, hit their defense industrial base, continue to hit their units on that battlefront from from east to south. It's vital. Uh, And he's confident that, uh, and and based on the meetings he's had with with leaders on Capitol Hill and the discussions he's had, certainly uh, uh, over recent weeks, uh, that, again, the leadership, even on the House side, the leadership is solidly in support of supporting Ukraine.
12: So, Democratic Hill sources have told me that they have asked the White House if there's anything that the president can do on his own, solo, outside of Congress to get aid for Ukraine. I asked John Kirby about that, and he didn't answer, essentially saying that those are private conversations uh, and that the president is going to continue talking to leadership on the Hill and Republicans on the Hill. But uh, some Democrats also said that if the president were even to take solo action to help Ukraine, they think that there might be some options there. But even if he does, it won't be at the scale that you Ukraine needs.
1: And, Nick, Ukrainian officials say the lack of funding has real consequences for Ukrainian lives on the battlefield and Kyiv's ability to hold off uh, Russian advances.
10: Uh, and it's already seen on the front line right now. Uh, Ukraine failed in its own goals for the counteroffensive last year. It has begun to ration on the front line this year because of the lack of U.S. military support. And it knows, as long as this debate goes on, it will continue to have to ration. And that is means that. Uh, Russian artillery up and down the front is already outnumbering Ukraine, and Ukraine's about to lose control of a major city in the east called Avdivka. And as dire as that sounds, Jeff, there's an even bigger problem, because U.S. officials believe that, as this delay continues, Ukraine will begin to run out of air defense. And what that means is Ukraine's ability to shoot down Russian drones, Russian missiles, that are currently attacking Ukrainian critical infrastructure, that is, to keep the, you know, the power uh, mm-hmm. going, the, the lights on in Ukraine. Uh, in addition to that, it's Ukrainian air defense that prevents Russian jets from being able to fly over Ukrainian territory, not only the front, but even in Western Ukraine. Uh, and so the bottom line is, it's hard to imagine Ukraine holding on to its own territory today, let alone trying to recapture some of that 20 percent of uh, territory that Russia uh, occupies right now. And as for a plan B that Laura was talking about, absolutely, there certainly are discussions about what could come next. But the bottom line, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan yesterday said, quote, there is no alternative to these funds, these funds that provide ammunition, that go to Ukraine immediately, within weeks. That is what Ukraine needs. And right now, it's not getting it, whether along the front or in air defense.
1: NICK SCHIFRIN, Laura lopez and Lisa Desjardins, our thanks to you, all three of you. Thank you. Thank you.
0: One of the most brutal Russian attacks against Ukraine took place in Mariupol two years ago. Today, Human Rights Watch, in collaboration with two other organizations, released a report detailing what happened and who in Russia was responsible. Nick Schifrin is back with this report. And a warning, some of the images in this report are disturbing.
10: They made a desert and called it peace. Mariupol is the crucible of Russian cruelty the symbol of Ukrainian sacrifice. Russia's bombardment defiled a city named for the Virgin Mary and reduced it to dust and debris. It stole dignity from the dead, mass graves, roadside burials, a city steeped in sorrow, where fathers waited for the unspeakable. And the victims were the most vulnerable. Killing even those who would never lift.
2: This operation really stands out as one of the worst chapters of Russia's full scale invasion of Ukraine so far.
10: Ida Sawyers, the Crisis and Conflict Director at Human Rights Watch, and one of the lead authors on today's report in collaboration with visual investigations team SITU Research and the Ukrainian research group Truthhounds.
2: This research was incredibly difficult given that the city is. Still under Russian occupation, so we had to rely on interviewing people once they were able to escape and then corroborate that with our photo, video, satellite imagery analysis.
10: Nowhere is Mariupol's suffering more visible than in the city's cemeteries. The report examined five sites, counted individual graves, and mapped newly dug graves in red to conclude the Russian campaign killed at least 8,000 people.
2: But we recognize that this is likely a significant underestimate, given that some of the graves may have contained multiple bodies. Some of those buried in makeshift graves may have never been transferred. The remains of others might be still in the rubble. The numbers that we came to are already horrifically high, but really just the minimum. In addition to satellite images, the
10: report also documents the depth of Russia's destruction. 93% of all high rises in red damaged in the city center, 86 of 89 schools and universities, all of Mariupol's 19 hospitals.
2: In these attacks, we did not find evidence of. Ukrainian military presence, or a very limited Ukrainian military presence, that would not have justified these attacks on civilian targets. These attacks were apparently unlawful and may amount to war crimes.
10: War crimes committed by 10 specific officials, starting with President Vladimir Putin, Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu, but also using social media posts, local obituaries, and award ceremonies, the report identifies military units that destroyed Mariupol.
2: We are calling for these 10 individuals and potentially other commanders of the 17 units we've identified to be investigated and appropriately prosecuted.
3: So we left without
10: gas, without water, without power, so we are absolutely isolated from civilization. No internet, no update, nothing. The report features survivors such as Dennis Shertov, who filmed his open air kitchen. And the destruction of everything he had ever built. Look around what is going on, what's happening with He completely destroyed. Completely gone. And Mikhailo Puroshev, who filmed his descent into the heart of darkness. He emerged to horror. There's no happy ending here. The report finds that Russian occupation forces are erasing their own crimes and Mariupol's Ukrainian culture.
2: They're enforcing a Russian school curriculum, and they're also requiring residents to obtain Russian passports to be eligible for certain jobs, to get social welfare payments, or to have access to health care.
10: Today in Kyiv, Mariupol's chamber orchestra played at the report launch. The authors hope they help find justice and ensure that what's been lost is not forgotten. For the PBS Hour, I'm Nick Schifrin.
1: Now a look at rising rental prices and the struggle to find affordable housing. Stephanie Tsai has the story.
13: Rental prices are unaffordable for a record number of Americans, with half of all renters paying more than 30 percent of their income on rent and utilities. That's according to a new report from Harvard's Joint Center for Housing Studies that examined 2022 census data. We reached out to renters across the country to hear how these soaring prices are impacting their lives.
14: My name's Kathleen Hahn, and I am almost 46 years old. I live outside of Atlanta, Georgia. I am probably paying about two-thirds of my income, my monthly income, in rent.
10: My name is Dwayne Precise. I am 62
1: years old, and I live in Tucson, Arizona. Uh, My rent is about
10: 75% of my income. Uh,
15: So my name is Tasha Ford. Uh, I live in Caldwell, Idaho. I am 35, almost 36, for Percentage of my income on rent, I spend about roughly 42% between rent and utilities.
16: My name is Jade Galecki. I'm 26 years old in Charleston, South Carolina. I estimate that I spend about 60% of my monthly income on rent and utilities.
10: My name is Dennis Layden. I'm 34 and I live in Panama
17: City, Florida. Your rent is you know, taking up a third or more of your budget. The first thing that you have to get rid of is your entertainment budget. You have to get rid of things that
10: give us, I guess, relief.
14: In one year I had a $300 price hike. Um, And then just this last year, it was a $700 price hike. If it keeps going up, we're going to have to reevaluate a lot of things. We're going to have to reevaluate family members being to have their own space
10: the only option that would be cheaper really
1: is a trailer and get a double wide trailer for between six and seven hundred dollars which is still more than half of my income but it's less than 75 percent
14: in
15: order to make up for the additional cost of rent um we do have to every once in a while go to you know food pantries to even subsidize our grocery budget, which is abysmal at this point. At the end of the day,
10: you know, when you're paying that much, you really can only afford food, your utilities, your living, your rent, and then obviously gas and stuff like that. And
8: you know, that's that's it.
16: I can't see myself going without having roommates. In my current situation, I actually live with a couple who's no longer a couple anymore. But we cannot afford to live elsewhere. So we have three people in a two-bedroom. Two of whom are no longer in a relationship and sharing a room because of how hard it is to find housing.
1: It's nerve-wracking. There's no real way to prepare for it, especially if you're going to be low. And there are times when I have to think about, in the next couple days, do I need food for me or for the pets more?
15: You know, there are times when Money is so tight that we'll all go out as a family and do DoorDash together. So, you know, it's it's embarrassing. It's not fun, especially, you know, since I have a professional job and things like that. And, you know, I have an MBA and I'm out delivering DoorDash on the side. And so my kids, they're aware of the financial pressures, but at the same time, it's like
14: we take those opportunities to spend time together as a family. I think I'm going to be running my whole entire life and that's um, it's really sad because I make a good living. I, I'm a middle-of-the-road American, and I should be able to buy a house.
16: It is a constant hamster wheel of working just to go to sleep and write
13: someone. And uh, it's hard. And joining me now is Whitney Ergood-Obrecki, the lead author of a new report from Harvard's Joint Center for Housing Studies that has been tracking U.S. rental prices. Whitney, thanks for joining the News Hour. So those renters we just heard from, they're all described as cost burdened in housing market lingo. That means they're paying more than 30% of their income toward rent. Your study found that in 2022, 22.4 million Americans were in that boat. Tell us more about what was behind that. That's correct.
18: We saw a record high number of cost burden renters in 2022. Part of this came from record high rent growth that came at the end of 2021, in early 2022. And that was really from a surge in rental demand in a period where we just weren't building enough. So we weren't getting enough supply. We were seeing a huge increase in the number of renter households. That drove vacancy rates really low, and it really uh, pushed rents up, and it made it much harder for people to afford their housing.
13: And I understand that this was something you saw across income levels, correct? That's correct.
18: We saw a large increase in cost burdens from 2019 to 2022, an additional 2 million households, and an increase of about 3 percentage points, pushing the total cost burden rate up to about 50%. We saw this across every single income category we looked at, with especially large increases among middle-income renter households. But even among the lowest-income households who make less than $30,000, their cost burden rate increased by a percentage point and a half to another record high of 83%.
13: We can all imagine what that might mean for someone already making low wages. For how many Americans, did that mean homelessness or sacrificing essentials?
18: Lower-income households who are severely cost-burdened, meaning they spend more than half of their income on rent and utilities, are less likely to spend on things like food, health care, retirement. So we see significant differences between those who are severely cost-burdened and those who are not cost-burdened. So there's certainly trade-offs that are involved when you live in unaffordable housing. This year, we have also seen a record high number of people who are experiencing homelessness. And so certainly this lack of affordable housing is pushing people into these situations where they just can't afford anything and they end up in shelters or they end up in places like in cars on the streets where it's a more visible form of unsheltered homelessness.
13: How much of that in 2022 was sort of due to the pandemic and, and the burdens on families from that? The rise in homelessness really came at a time when we
18: saw pandemic relief measures ending, and rents were also increasing at some of the fastest rates we've ever seen. So it really put a lot of households in a bind.
13: Whitney, I I do understand that in the last year, rental prices have been slowing. Does that mean things are getting better for renters now? What we're seeing in some of the rent data is that there's a slowing of rent growth. And in
18: some markets, there's actual declines in rents. But what we saw during the pandemic were such significant increases. So in some quarters, rents were increasing by more than 20 percent year over year. And so we're really in a situation where things are much less affordable than they were pre-pandemic. We are seeing some of that market cooling, some deceptive acceleration of rent growth, but in most places rents are in
13: fact still growing. Uh, when you talk about supply, the supply of low rent units, according to your report, has precipitously declined in the last decade. So those renters, I assume will continue to feel the squeeze. What are effective ways to address that problem and rent affordability overall? We're really going to need every
18: tool that we have in the toolbox. And so a lot of policy momentum right now is just around increasing supply with the idea that a lot of supply at the higher end will filter down and provide rent relief further down uh, the market. And so we're seeing a lot of zoning reform across the country. What we're really going to need, though, are increased subsidies. So through things like public housing or housing choice vouchers and a much broader commitment from our federal, state and local levels toward really addressing the affordability crisis, both toward increasing affordable options and toward, Uh, really addressing this problem of rising homelessness that we're also seeing.
13: Whitney Ergood-Obrecki with Harvard's Joint Center for Housing Studies. Thank you so much. Thank you.
0: In the last election, the city of St. Paul, Minnesota, did something it had never done before elect an all female city council. The state's capital became one of the largest, if not the largest, American city to hold that distinction. Special correspondent Fred DeSam Lazaro reports.
9: For two days last month, the St. Paul City Council retreated from its chambers. It was a chance for councilors and their staff to go over policy priorities for the coming year. But with four new members on the seven person council, some get to know yous were in order first.
12: My happy place in St. Paul is Garrett Island.
9: The magnitude of this moment, the first time St. Paul has had an all female city council, is far from lost on this group.
7: What budget impacts would we anticipate, if any?
9: Mitra Jalali was first elected to the council in 2018. Now she's the president.
7: I think the significance is that. We still live in a time where there are so many barriers to women and women of color especially being in power. And suddenly this moment is showing people this is the normal actually that we're fighting for. It shouldn't be notable. It should just be what people have been used to because what we need to be doing is getting work done for our communities.
9: On the new council's to-do list, tackling a lack of affordable housing in the city, a task that may include changes to the city's rent control ordinance. And the council is responsible for passing a city budget to pay for things like public safety and improvement to aging roads and other infrastructure.
7: That's real to us. That's not just like, oh, that happened to someone over there. That's like, I need this for my cousin, I need this for my parent, I need this for the person, my neighbor that I care about, right? All that's connected.
9: Not only is this the first time that St. Paul elected an all-female city council, but six of its seven members are persons of color in a white majority city. And the oldest member is just 39. All the firsts were on display during a swearing-in ceremony last month in front of a packed crowd at a local concert hall. Wa Jong Kim who won Ward 5 in the northern part of the city, said she's had conversations with female constituents of all ages.
14: I get to I think be a part of this moment in history that's really impactful for younger generations to be able to not just see themselves, but notice that it is possible. And their perception of the world, I think, is shaped by being able to witness this moment, as is for some of our older generations, where they've never seen something like this happen. And to be able to see in their own lifetime the progress that we've made feels
9: really special. For Melvin Carter, who became St. Paul's first black mayor in 2018, the occasion represented an important step for the city's politics.
1: As public servants, we bear a profound responsibility to expand the set of decision makers to ensure the city we build is one we build together. Each voice, a vital thread woven into the vibrant fabric
9: of our community. St. Paul was incorporated in 1854, but it took more than 100 years for the first woman to be elected to the city council. And it wasn't until 2018 that the council had more than three women. But last fall, members of this group endorsed each other, campaigned together as an informal block, and swept every seat. Their professional experiences range from teacher to nonprofit director to civil engineer. Members say the council's diversity will help it address St. Paul's challenges, including the Twin Cities area's persistent racial inequities, some of the sharpest
7: in the nation. We have more firsthand experience on this council with um, systemic racism, with uh, disparities, with barriers that were created by public policy and can be remedied by public policy. It won't happen overnight, but it is possible to to change it, to remediate that. That's what I think this council is here to do.
14: Women have been left out of not just the rooms, but the policymaking systems that are really intentionally meant to keep us out, um, spaces of power that, uh, of course, are constructed to keep us out. So to me, knowing that there are so many women on the council that know exactly what that feels like means that we'll be much more inclusive in our policy making.
11: To the best of my judgment and my
16: ability.
9: Anika Bui, an entrepreneur and community organizer, is one of the new councillors. She represents Ward 1 in the heart of the city, and her family has lived in St. Paul for almost a century.
12: Not only we are making history, but we're in the driver's seat <laughs> of history, um, and that we get to continue telling this longer story, right? To where it's just like it's not just we have all women council, period, but it's comma, and we did so many amazing things.
9: Among them, building a climate-resilient city with adequate housing for everyone, but more immediately, tending to voters' everyday concerns like filling potholes. For the PBS NewsHour, I'm Fred DeSam Lazaro in St. Paul.
0: And Fred's reporting is a partnership with the Undertold Stories Project at the University of St. Thomas in Minnesota.
1: More than 100 million viewers in the U.S. are expected to tune into the Super Bowl this Sunday. These days, major live sporting events are often a two-screen experience. But one unusual fan puts a different lens on the moment, exploring the symmetry with sports and arts through social media. Jeffrey Brown looks at this viral phenomenon for our arts and culture series, Canvas.
5: A contemporary football celebration juxtaposed with Giotto's Lamentation from 1305 a player taunting his opponent with the martyrdom of St. Matthew by Caravaggio. Sports highlights arts masterworks set side by side and gaining hundreds of thousands of social media views in a digital project launched in 2019 called Art But Make It Sports, created by 34-year-old New York sports fan L.J. Rader.
17: I try to see things through a sports lens, even if it's a piece of fine art, uh, trying to figure out, you know, what could that moment in art be in sports? What could I compare it to uh, image wise that might make somebody look at it and say, yeah, like I get it, I, I can see the, the parallels here. Uh, and I think that's part of why the account uh, resonates with people because they're not often used to seeing art and sports talked about or-, or put next to each other visually.
5: Why is it obvious to you that they belong together?
17: There are a lot of parallels when it comes to the emotion that you find in, in fine art uh, and then you find in the, the sporting arena. Uh, there's obviously the visual component with you know, limbs and people moving around in a frame. Um, oftentimes you'll see on social media, people post a photo from a, a sports event and say, you know, hang it in the Louvre uh, as a indication that, you know, they can see something that's artistic about it. And then I come in and actually find the piece of art that uh That that sports image actually resembles.
5: Raider's day job is with a sports data and technology firm, but his passion is curating his collection of thousands of photos taken at museums. He took a grand total of one art history course in college, but he's a longtime amateur art lover.
17: The true starting off point is when I go to museums and galleries and take photos. Uh, I put them all in one folder on my phone. And so I have this massive folder of all these images that I've I've taken and, and have kind of come to memorize.
5: Did you say memorize? You've memorized like hundreds, thousands of images?
17: Yeah, so maybe it's not directly memorizing every detail, but it's, it's knowing certain patterns that exist, certain themes within a museum, and then a good chunk of, of actual paintings that I kind of know how they're composed uh, so that when I see something oftentimes, see something in sports, oftentimes I can... You know, go in my, my mind's eye and say, Oh, you know, that, that reminds me of such and such painting.
5: And it's not just the more obvious match of a body or specific image. Radar gets his biggest pleasures out of more abstract connections.
17: There's one I did uh, Milwaukee Brewers players uh, sliding into home plate, and the catcher and the umpire, I believe, are, both have their, their arms out at the same time. And it's trying to think through, you know, what could that be? And trying to match on hopefully that moment, maybe the colors of of the composition. Uh, I landed on a Eve's Klein uh, painting where uh, very similar um, positions. And uh, yeah, the more abstract ones tend to to get people really excited because it's not something that they thought of directly.
5: So there is a bit of uh, art in putting these things together.
17: Yeah, I guess. artistry, maybe curation. Uh, I don't quite know what to, to consider myself. But, uh, yeah, I think the uh, it sort of takes takes maybe not to a, an elevated level, but just sort of a, an extension of, of what the original intention might have been. And um, I think that in itself, I guess, is uh, there's some artistry to it.
5: Some have wondered aloud whether Raider is relying on artificial intelligence to make his matches. But other than using A.I. to help organize his pictures, he says... It's really just me. So, we have the Super Bowl coming up this weekend, of course. Do you watch in a way that's different from the rest of us, images rather than touchdowns?
17: (laughs) Yeah, I think I watch the same as the the average sports fan, but maybe in the back of my head, uh, when I see a moment, sometimes it just immediately clicks to you know, what that could be in the, the art world.
5: Well, and how about a prediction for the game? Uh, some people might predict the uh, winner. You're looking at, what, Patrick Mahomes and
17: uh, Picasso? Hopefully something happens where I can uh, make that parallel. Uh, I think uh, the Chiefs have been uh, really good for uh, inspiration over the course of the season in the playoffs. So um, maybe I'm I'm pulling for them just so I could, you know, potentially do a, a Mahomes in Picasso, or a, I did a Jason Kelsey in the the Feast of Bacchus, but uh, yeah, hoping hoping for good content to come out of it.
5: Art, but make it sports. L.J. Rader, thank you very much.
17: Thanks for having me.
0: And that is the news hour for tonight. I'm Amna Nawaz,
1: and I'm Jeff Bennett. Thanks for spending part of your evening with us.